Support for the game podcast is brought to you by StarCityGames.com, the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies and home for the best strategy content on the web. If you would like to support the game podcast, feel free to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the G-A-M podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to the 74th episode of the Game Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson here with Brian Sakashima, presumably the imposter, Gottlieb. Yeah, definitely the imposter. I had to acknowledge my Sakashima-ness for the last time because this is it. This is the last episode of Sakashima-ness. After this episode, and I haven't even told you this, this is this is a crazy fact. Ew. After this episode, I will have participated in more episodes of the Game Podcast than I will have not participated in. This is the breaking point. That is beautiful. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. I mean, I've always felt to some extent like I was stepping in for Andrew and Michael, but now we've we've done the same number of casts. Um, So I I don't feel like a Sakashima the imposter anymore. I feel like a true member of the Gamily, as we've come to call it over in the Discord. And uh, yeah, so I had to acknowledge that for one last time. Dude, that's that's so wonderful, and I'm I'm really happy to hear that. And it's it's going to be great the first time someone is just like. Who's Michael Majors, you know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll definitely have to report that to him as soon as it happens. When he oh, yeah, of course. Um, as, you know, as all members of Wizards R&D eventually do, they're like, uh, I guess I can't spoil anything. Never mind. They're like a certain movie that's going around. Mm. Yeah, we won't be specific, more specific than that. Mm. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so this week has basically taught me that for as much as I know about magic and you know, how, how much I try and like learn things and everything. It's like nothing really makes any sense, or at least it seems that way. Like this weekend's events were just like completely confusing. And a lot of things happened like very quickly. And it was all very strange. The pace of the magic hive mind right now is absurd. Like I, I don't recall anything like this. How quickly things are evolving is really kind of unprecedented in my time uh, associated with competitive magic. And I've been around for a while, you know, and it makes sense. There's more and more media. There's more communities. You know, we have our community and over in the discord, we, we have this podcast, which I know a lot of people are out there listening to. That's, that's always moving things along and people are reaching seemingly correct conclusions much faster than they used to. Yeah, and if anything, it's it's just going to get faster and faster, right? You would you would think at least. How can it? How can it get faster than this? It gets so fast right now. I don't know, man. I didn't think it could get faster than you know previously or whatever. But this week has has basically shoved that up. Yeah. So I guess we'll start with the Magic Online PTQ, which was the slower of the two events this weekend compared to like this and GP Birmingham. Yeah, I think that's right, at least in terms of the winner. Uh, it was won by Daniel Fournier uh, on a black-white deck. Looked very similar to someone else's black-white deck I, I've seen floating around. And, and I know Daniel is a listener, and you know he referenced that he had listened to us talk about this deck last week and, and do our deep dive. But really the only black-white deck that found any success this weekend in his hands. Yeah, kind of. I mean, we'll, we'll get into this later, but uh, Ben Sek lost playing for top eight of the GP with black-white or white-black. Okay. But yeah, uh, Daniel's list is 
fairly normal-ish. Uh, there's a few extra black sources, uh, all four if near Deadlands, and that's mainly there to support four fatal pushes. The Aether Sphere Harvesters are basically out of the list, and Daniel's not messing around. He's got four hearts, four cards, basically just like playing a lot of the good cards. Yeah, a nice approach, nice streamlined approach for the metagame he faced. And obviously it served him well to get rid of those uh, those harvesters. I mean, look, there's there's no mono red around. And even when there is, there's so many abrades in the format at this point, it's really hard to rely on artifacts to do your catch-up work. You know, artifacts can certainly be part of your game plan when they're as powerful as something like Heart of Kirin or as resilient as something like Scrap Heap Scrounger or as versatile as something like Walking Ballista. You know, all the best cards in this format do continue to be artifacts, but you have to pick and choose your spots. You have to think very carefully about what artifacts you're willing to invest in. And maybe Harvester's just not worth the investment right now. Yeah, that's entirely possible. Uh, I think... Maybe the major reason is that Gideon of the Trials is cropping up in these lists just as a card that's good against opposing Heart of Kirins and also very good with your own. Right. And card we've been high on for a little while now continues to make its mark across the format after doing nothing for a long period of time. And now Gideon's everywhere. Yeah, I mean, I I think you could say maybe the same-ish for Heart of Kirin where... You know, before it was like just this Mardu card, right? But now it's in like the the mono green aggro decks. It's in like these white decks. It's in some of the red decks. It's just, it is kind of like all over the place. And you kind of have to wonder if it is just a direct response to seal away or if it's just like, you know, maybe we've just been underplaying the card the entire time. Yeah, I think it also has a lot to do with Karn, right? When you make a four-mana Planeswalker that every deck can play. Uh, and not all of them should be, but a lot of them are playing Karn right now. Uh, it makes it a lot easier to get Heart of Cure in it and to use it profitably. Yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, it is weird because not all of the red-black decks are actually playing with Karn. Correct. A lot of, a lot of uh, Chandra's in that slot as well. Yeah, so I don't know. Maybe I blew it by not playing Heart of Cure in at GP Seattle. It's possible. I I mean, it's hard to beat yourself up too much, but yeah, it, it's hard to say if, if Heart of Cure was just kind of, you know, it's, it's funny how the collective consciousness pushes things to the back of our minds. And, uh, you know, we give up on cards really wholesale as a community. We're just like, man, that card's not good anymore. And, you know, heart has always been a 4-4 four, four for two. That's, ne- that's never changed. And maybe we just had to work a little harder to get it into our decks. But you think about what the format was about at that point. You know, things like Grixis with a host of ways to kill heart. Blue-black was the default control deck. Again, you know, Fatal Push was there, ways to to deal with the card profitably. So you can see why when the removal looked very different than it does now, Heart was just pushed completely out of the format. Yeah, I mean, there's also something to be said for opposing Karns and opposing Chandra's and Heart being particularly good against those. Right, good point. But yeah, the, the rest of this top eight is like kind of all over the place. It's like you, you have some green-black, some blue-white, uh, a weirdo approach deck with uh, the Secrets. Yeah, don't know what to make of that deck. Um, I think in the face of future evolutions that we see coming up in our next event we're going to talk about, I, I would not want to pick this deck up right now. It seems like uh, an absolute disaster into some of the other control decks around. But where we was facing just a field of aggro decks, I mean, this is kind of designed to exploit that and probably did so fairly well. Yeah, I think so too. It is, it is cool to note that like a lot of the white removal is enchantment based. So you end up with a, a whole bunch of permanents in play, which makes getting City's Blessing very, very easy. Right. But yeah, man, this, this PTQ, 
it, there are parts of it that look like, oh man, like, you know, these, some of these people are very far ahead, but then you compare this to the Grand Prix and it's just like, I think these results are just mostly outdated at this point. They, they are. That would be my take on it as well. I, I think they are behind where the metagame actually stands right now. You start to see a little bit of what was ultimately going to happen on the rest of the weekend, maybe with the fourth place list. Um, we're starting to see red black come into play, but even this list, I mean, the red black list evolved beyond this approach in the course of just a couple days, they realized they would have to prepare for chain whirler mirrors and the whole build completely shifted by the time we got to Birmingham. Yeah. So I was there and I got in Wednesday morning was at the GP site Thursday, Friday. I did not play legacy. So that time was basically spent trying to figure out what deck I was going to play. And when I got on the flight, I'm like, oh, okay, you know, like if people are playing white, black, and uh, maybe green, black as a response to that, and people are still playing blue, white control, then this green, black constructs deck is going to be pretty sweet. Yeah, I know you were very excited about the deck at one point. You were definitely all about it. Oh, I was, I was crushing it online, and the matchups just seemed kind of like a joke, you know? Mm-hmm. And everything changed in two days, man. Just being on on the floor and talking to people and the more I talked to people, it was like, okay, I think red black is pretty good. And then later in the day, people are just like, I think red black's the nuts and I'm definitely going to play it. And then, you know, Friday rolls around and everyone's like, all right, how do we beat red black? And it's just like the tournament hasn't even started. And like, you know, normally, (laughs) normally you have to wait for like two tournaments to get to that point. Right. Not here. Yeah. It was, it was just bizarre. I mean, like obviously a lot of that has to do with like Matt folks and, him streaming and also just like posting a very hyperbolic <laughs> Twitter post where it's just like, this is the best goddamn deck you'll ever see or whatever. And like, here's a sideboarding guide. And uh, some of the, the lesser known players I talked to, like, they're just like, Oh, what are you playing? And I was like, I think I'm playing red black, but I don't know. And we start talking about lists and stuff. And I'm just like, you're, you're just playing Matt's deck, aren't you? And they're like, Yeah. Everyone, if you read the top eight profiles, everyone's like, oh, I just played Matt's deck. I played Matt's deck over and over. He had an incredible amount of influence on this tournament. Part of it is that he was a good salesman with his deck. He, Like you said, he was very hyperbolic. Uh, and part of it was, I think he was just right. I mean, this was the right deck to play into this weekend for sure. And the people who realized that and realized that everyone else realized that took the next step and, and really came out ahead of the tournament. And it's funny because I wasn't even at this tournament. But just by hanging out in our Discord all weekend, there were a bunch of people who were there who were chatting back and forth. By the time I would say Friday had rolled around, I knew that Red Black was going to be the best, the most played deck. And it was very, very clear to me that was the case because it's all anyone was talking about on Twitter, in the Discord, just absolutely everywhere. So even across the sea, I, I was able to get the impression <laughs> of, of what was going on right there in Birmingham. Yeah. And like I said, I was there and I caught wind of this and the majority of my time Friday was like, okay, should I play red black? And if not, I should definitely play a deck that is good against it. Like Goblin Chain Roller just makes Metallic Mimic a joke, right? So uh, I eventually settled on white black actually because I thought the white mythics and uh, good removal spells and all that would have a reasonable matchup against the deck. So I sat down with my friend Varro and we hammered out a deck list and he ended up just playing mono red because he didn't want to spend a bunch of money on like Gideons and stuff. But I stuck with it. I messaged TBS at some point because he lives in uh, Barcelona now. 
Yeah, he was just like, you know, I think I'm playing blue-white. Like, what are you playing? And I was like, well, if your blue-white deck is good against red-black, then you should have a good chance. And he's just like, oh, no, my list isn't tuned at all. He's just like, give me a deck list. So I did. And he he ended up losing playing for top eight, whereas I started 5-0 and then uh, 5-0 beating two blue-white decks. And then I played against red-black three rounds in a row. Definitely threw away one of the one of the games in one of the matches. And, uh, yeah, then I was 5-3 and three and not playing in day two. So... Red black is good. Do you think you misevaluated the quality of your matchup or was it just ran bad, you know, too small of a sample size to really tell? What do you think happened there? No, I mean, I watched I watched TBS play the matchup and we were coming at it from very similar angles and everything and I think things mostly just like broke his way and I don't know, like Outside of outside of the game that I punted, it just seemed like my opponents outdrew me by a wide margin and there are also some games where, like, I keep a two-lander and don't play a third land or whatever. Like, I don't want to just, like, blame variants, but I, de- I definitely felt it, you know? Mm-hmm. And my matchup, I think, was not such an overwhelming favorite that I could afford those sorts of stumbles and still win. So I don't think that white-black is, like, the definite deck to play if you're trying to beat red-black. Okay, yeah, that's what I was really getting at because I also didn't have – I don't think it's bad against red black. I just don't have that sense that it's an overwhelming favorite. I think you have nice plans against them and it certainly feels close ish to me, but you have some big haymakers that maybe swing things a little bit in your favor, but ultimately you're just playing some, some pretty fair magic uh, and, you know, asking the top of your deck, what it can do for you in a lot of spots. Right. And uh, I played a third Gideon, which was quite good. It's a little awkward because the first one rarely dies. So the second copy kind of ends up being pretty poor, but if they have to jump through a lot of hoops to kill the first Gideon, then that certainly works out in your favor. I played Angel of Sanctions instead of Lyra, and going forward, I think a split might make a little bit more sense there, but mm-hmm. Angel of Sanctions was another very good way to like break up these, not like board stalls, but just like, you know, they're... They, they stabilize behind like a planeswalker and a big flyer or whatever. And then you can just like take out the flyer for at least a turn and then attack down the planeswalker and everything. So I think, I think Angel of Sanctions were good, but like there are also games where I would play Angel of Sanctions, but they would have so many more resources than me that I would still just end up losing. So mm. in, in those sorts of games, I think Lyra would have actually just like closed the door. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, I, I guess that there is very variable board states that both are dominant on, right? Like you can think of some spots where only Angel of Sanctions gets you out of it. And you can think of other spots where Lyra is exactly what you need. So th- that points to a split, obviously. Uh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, it's it's kind of weird. And uh, obviously, like this deck has toolcraft exemplars and you basically need them i i think that like you can't really afford to play the deck without it just because of how good it is with heart of Kieran and how much it helps you pressure the non-red black decks but like i mean we got to talk about goblin chain whirler man like what is this doing to the format uh fundamentally changing it i mean it's shaping everything around this card it's so incredibly important and understanding how to build your deck in a goblin chain whirler meta changes everything. And and the ripple effects are huge too. Like that's the thing that I I think I underestimated at first because we were talking a little bit in our we're preparing for GP Toronto right now the team tournament and we discussed a little bit, you know, some standard decks that we thought might be good. And I kind of proposed, well, why isn't red just good? Like shouldn't red dominate when the f- whole format is like blue white control and scrap heap scrounger heart of Kieran decks that can't effectively block. 
But the problem is that Chain Whirler deals with Red's threats so effectively. And obviously, you can build around that. You can get bigger. But as soon as you do that, you're giving up tons of equity in the blue-white matchups. You're no longer able to effectively pressure their life totals. If you're not playing like your Bomat Couriers, you've given up so, so much as far as leverage in that matchup and the way you're able to kind of pressure them and, and demand answers. That goes completely out the window when you make that deck-building concession. So Chain Whirler's effect on this format is absolutely tremendous right now. Yeah, and then there's the things like Llanowar Elves, too. It's like, are you going right. to build a green deck and just completely forego playing ladder worlds because it's just going to get swept up in a chain whirler. Like at that point, that's, that's just the card that is like driving the green decks right now. Yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine green decks without it. I mean, we, we can, cause we played the last format and they were pretty laughable. They really were not a contender and things are already turning back in that direction because of the widespread adoption of goblin chain whirler. Man, did I, undervalue this card when we did our top 10 list i am very embarrassed to not have had this on my list at all well it's it's one thing to be like okay chain whirler is a good card right and sometimes you're gonna like sweep up some tokens or whatever but it does fundamentally warp the entire format when like 30 percent of the decks in the format are playing it you know if it's only like 10 percent, it's like yeah whatever like i'll, I'll play my land war elf metallic mimic deck like i was going to and then have a good sideboard plan against people who are playing that card but when it is literally everywhere like you just can't be playing one toughness things right now yeah let me let me drop a little knowledge on you out of the 64 possible decks from the combined ptq and gp top 32s there were 28 red black aggro decks I don't know what percentage of those played Chain Whirlers. I would assume a very large percentage. And that's on top of four Monored Aggro decks. Again, I would assume mostly Chain Whirlers there. So that means a full half of the top 64 was playing Goblin Chain Whirler. That's absolutely insane penetration into the format. Right. And again, that that's not like just overall metagame share. That is like winner's metagame share, which just, just means as the tournaments go on, you are going to be fighting these things like more and more and more. Right. And you need to have a plan for it. And it's such a difficult balance because like you say, a lot of these decks are absolutely dependent on these one drops that have vulnerabilities to chain whirler. I can't imagine playing red without Bomat Courier, but you start to consider it where this card is ubiquitous. And that's to say nothing of Walking Ballista as well, which is also one of the most played cards in the format. So where do things go from here? Do you, I mean, are you in the camp that you have to kind of ignore Goblin Chain Whirler and just do what your deck does? Or do you think it demands fundamentally changing your decks? Or does it just invalidate certain decks? Can you not play green anymore when this card is as widespread as it is? I think you can play green and you can even play Llanowar Elves. One thing that I'm actually kind of looking at, like I have a list of decks that I want to test. It's like five or six deep uh, following the results of this GP. And one of them is just like, uh, Lanor Elves, Servant of the Conduit, Bristling Hydra, Carnage Tyrant. Mm, the old Hexproof deck. And, well, yeah, Hexproof and kind of Trample, but mostly just like it is very tough to block this. So, yeah, Carnage Tyrant seems particularly well positioned against Red Black because, you know, they, they don't block very well and uh, they lean really heavily on like their Planeswalkers and unlicensed disintegrations and very mm. few of them have enough doom falls in their sideboard to actually handle this card. So I do think that you can do something along those lines, but you could also just go the route of like cutting land or else entirely and playing servant of the conduit or some other two drop accelerator. It's not 
definitely not pretty, but it is something you can do. Giving up a lot of the power inherent in that deck by doing so. You know, I've I've seen some discussion that posits this card is a mistake. Where do you fall on that spectrum? Is is Goblin Chain Whirler a mistake? Is it having unintended consequences across the format, or is it just a good check on all the X ones? Oh man, it's it's hard to just say that like, oh, it's a good check because it, it's one thing if it were a card that people could turn to if the field was very Llanowar Elf heavy or token heavy or something, but you don't really have to pay a cost to play this card. You just play it in your main deck. It's a completely reasonable magic card and all of the X and ones just get punished as a result, which I don't feel is particularly healthy. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's noteworthy. I think that if rampaging Ferocidon was unbanned right now, you would without question be playing chain whirler over it. I think, I mean, I don't even think you'd be considering Ferocidon in that slot right now. There may be some on the sideboard. It might be a card you want some number of, but I think chain whirler is the more impactful card. One of these is forced to the bench permanently. So it's, it's an interesting time. Um, I think there's a lot of strange things going on with the format. It remains very interesting, very prone to adaptation, but there are a couple of points of concern. One of them I would say is chain whirler effectively eliminating x ones the other is just there's a lot of really good colorless spells and i don't know if that's always a good place for these decks to fall in i mean you know we saw a ban of smuggler's copter because it was just easy for every deck to adapt you know there was no reason to play a deck that was attacking that didn't have smuggler's copter well similarly there's not much reason to play any kind of mid-range-ish deck without walking ballista and karn right now and even heart of kirin as it stands right now so that's a little troubling you know these decks are are using the same cores be it black white or black red um and a few other attacking decks as well are also picking up all these cards but on the whole i i think this format has been very, very interesting, very prone to evolution. I don't know. I, I think we'll probably see another step going forward in Toronto this weekend. It'll be hard to analyze it because it's a team tournament, but I think it's going to happen. Right. I, I think the best teams will find a way to answer this metagame. Maybe. I don't know. It's it's At this point, it's like kind of tough to just be like, oh, what are we playing in standard and not have the answer immediately just be red-black, right? I have another answer, but that's maybe we, it's time to get to that because you know I was going to make you talk about it. There was no way I was going to let you get away without discussing the second place deck in this tournament. We we will get to blue white do nothing control in a moment. Let me okay. let me circle back to let me circle back to the Ferocidon thing because I feel like this is a thing that people bring this up and it kind of annoys me because it's not entirely accurate where it's like, Oh yeah. Ha ha. Like, you know, they banned Ferocidon for no reason. And now there's chain whirler and people are talking about like banning chain whirler or whatever. But so my friend Varro ends up playing mono red, right? He realizes over the course of the tournament that he basically is incapable of winning games where he does not draw Hazard. That sounds pretty in line with my own experience with mono red. And maybe that has something to do with opposing goblin chain whirlers. Like, you know, just taking out a lot of your early tempo and stuff. But the the red creatures themselves are not doing a good enough job at actually dealing your opponent's 20 damage. And part of the reason, I think, might be because he is forced into playing Chain Whirler himself. And, and if you had something like Rampaging Ferocidon, like, that's a far more aggressive creature. And I think that it would allow the deck to stand on its own two legs a, a little bit easier without just relying on Hazard. Interesting. So you think in, in pure mono red, you would actually lean more on Ferocidon, uh, but in these kind of mid-range builds, they're more incentivized to look towards Chain Whirler. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm not sure how much Chain Whirler swings the pendulum, but I know that when I was playing Red Black in Seattle, even though I had like more one-mana interaction effectively with Inventor's Apprentice, Mono Red was one of the worst matchups. It was just, you know, sometimes like they would just get a very quick tempo lead on you and then they would just start dropping four mana mythics on you and it was just like really tough to catch up and you were basically incapable of racing, you know. Obviously, Chain Whirler helps that to some degree because you get to clean up like the early Bowmats and Kenra's and stuff. But uh, I do think that Mono Red should at least be a slight favorite against Red Black, especially the more they slow down in game one and start playing like, I don't know, just Glory Bringer and all the nonsense to beat up on the mirror matches. Well, that makes it seem like an excellent choice for upcoming tournaments, but I mean, it's not like Mono Red is not being played right now. It's not being played in as large of numbers as it used to, but I know people are picking up Mono Red for all of these tournaments, and it's just not getting any penetration into the winner's metagame. So maybe it's the other decks holding down Mono Red. You know, I know the, the Mono Green matchup is very difficult, just a lot of big bodies all over the place that Mono Red isn't super equipped to deal with. There was the Lyra problem for a long time, which I think the Red decks had to adapt to, and, you know, most have at this point, but Lyra was dramatically, dramatically overplayed early on in the format. So that was definitely an issue for Red. I don't know. It, it could be the next evolution. It's where my ma- mind went right away. I was just like, well, Red should be favored in this metagame. Um, and then I kind of started thinking, well, if that's true, it's not like the deck has been abandoned. Why is it having no penetration into the winner's metagame right now? Yeah, I mean, I think I think Varro, uh, the thing that, that he noticed about Hazard, I think that has like kind of a lot of consequences where it's just like, well, if, if that's the case, like how are you going to build your mono red decks as a result? You mentioned mono green and lyra and uh, a lot of people are sideboarding fight with fire in their mono red decks but like is is that the actual solution or are you supposed to like main deck that and if you do are you supposed to be like a slower red deck if you go down that route then maybe you can cut like the bowmats in the kenras and have some uh chain whirler insurance and play like phoenixes and glory bringers and stuff of your own but then maybe are you just a bad red black deck i don't know but the idea of a red deck that can go toe to toe with red black while also like kicking fight with fires in the late game against control. Like I, th- I think there's something there, but I'm not sure how deep down that rabbit hole you go. Right. Right. And you know, I would also point that as the red decks get bigger though, they do get softer to the control elements in the format. Absolutely. I would say that's a deck that's trending up right now too. So that puts you in a vulnerable position. If you're, if you're slowing down and getting bigger to get some traction in these black red matchups, you're, you're exposing yourself to the blue white matchup, certainly. Um, and, you know, I think black red should be your priority given the metagame numbers, but you can't ignore the other trends that are going on. Oh, of course. So what's, what's the opposite angle of that? It's like, go super low and kind of how the decks looked before PT hour where you have like cartouche and now you have invigorated rampage. Like is, is that a direction that you could go in? It could be. I mean, I mean, I think certainly in the blue white spots, it's a really good direction to go. And as far as how you line up against the chain whirler decks in that spot, I, I don't know. I, I would love to posit a guess, but my red experience has usually been pretty limited. Uh, I pick it up for a tournament here or there I don't know. I, I recognize the deck is powerful. When it had Rabinap Ruins, I, I played it a fair amount and had good success. But ever since the bans, I've, I've never been fully satisfied with Red. It always felt like it was missing something to me. Yeah. I, I mean, I agree that it's missing something from like 
the kind of slightly bigger, like I'm going to go up to Hazaret red deck. But like, what if you just go back to playing like 21 land, three Hazarets at your top end and just a bunch of stuff that kills your opponents, like a bunch of stuff that's good against like four mana planeswalkers and unlicensed disintegration. Like they have a braid and chain whirler uh, certainly. And if they draw a lot of that portion of their deck, like you're probably going to be in trouble, but you still have a lot of ways to actually like steal games, even going into the mid to late game. Yeah. It's an interesting approach. Um, you know, I, I'm just concerned that chain whirler bricks things too hard. It's an effective blocker as well. So not only does it sweep, but you can never attack into it again, but you've proposed some interesting ways to get around that. I'm not sure. I, I, I just have to leave this to the mono red experts of which there are many. Uh, and, you know, I think there are, better suited to addressing these issues than I am, but your approach seems to have a lot of merit to me and certainly merits exploration. Yeah. So I guess this is maybe like the fourth different take on Monterey that you can make is that you just go back to doing what the GP Seattle winner did, which was like play four Phoenix and four Hazaret. Like if you're leaning on Hazaret so much, what's like the conversion rate when you draw rekindling Phoenix, but not Hazaret, you know? And if, you basically just need like some bigger top end. Like, can you just add more of that? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the style that appeals to me. Certainly it feels more mid rangey and powerful and, you know, all your card quality goes through the roof when you take that kind of approach, which is the style of deck I tend to like more than just cobbling together a bunch of, of derpy one ones or, you know, two ones, if it tends to get a little bit bigger, but I could see that being, if I'm talked back into red, that's probably how you do it by getting me to play these really powerful red cards. And Chandra is a card, which I think has been well positioned, but again, probably better suited to the black red deck. Uh, they just use the card more effectively than mono red can, but a card that's making inroads back into the format as well. Cause this is a card that trended down for a while and now is being played in increasing numbers. Yeah. It's, it's weird. The amount of, uh, like Chandra gets better and better. Like when you add heart to the deck to combat opposing hearts, it's like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, well, suddenly this thing is not just a target and you can actually protect this reasonably well. Right. Okay. Now we can talk about blue white control if you want. Go nuts. Oh, it's time. It's time to talk about white blue control. Uh, Leo Lahonen. The biggest I told you so in game podcast history. Um, I don't know. There's probably been bigger ones. And, you know, all credit to Leo here. His his deck list was quite a bit better than the one I had been working on. Only about seven cards off in the main deck, but seven good changes, I believe. I, I think he really gets this archetype and did a great job. Kind of all the things we've been talking about when you're put into positions where, you know, people are playing around you and they're trying to make you dance. Pull from tomorrow is a hammer. And Leo recognized that adapted the technology. He didn't have the terrible torrential gear hulks that are super vulnerable to unlicensed disintegration. He didn't have the horrible four mana draw twos. He left them all home and he was rewarded with a second place finish by just maximizing Teferi, leaning really hard on these super powerful white blue cards, boring audiences to death by his games going on endlessly. But while the games take a long time to conclude, when Leo turned the corner, the results were often very, very clear for a long stretch of the game. He had almost no vulnerability in a lot of spots. And I, I think his card choices were carefully considered to get him to that point. And uh, a, a really nice job of you know, straying from conventional wisdom and, and building the deck in the correct fashion. I mean, this is what blue-white control should look like going forward. I am certain of that. At least for right now, right? Like this is... Sure, things can always change. 
Yeah, of course. Like, but like the the reason we should expand on this is because like this against uh, the current blue white decks with all the gear hooks and stuff. Like, I think this one is just a favorite, right? You have yes, more counter yes. magic. You have fewer dead cards, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, against red black and like the more mid range these decks get, the easier it is for you to just like pick them apart with syncopate and stuff. Yep, exactly right. And the red black matchup is favorable for this deck. I, I I have played it a bunch. I I know that you're a favorite against red black, and I've played it a bunch without some of the better cards that Leo had here. I really like his use of sorcerer spyglass spyglass against the deck. You know, forcing them to keep in otherwise dead of braids to <laughs> try and answer sorcerer spyglass. Martin Uza uh, in his top eight match even kept in release the gremlins as a plan to answer sorcerer spyglass, and it kind of rotted in his hand where Leo didn't draw the spyglass. So. And it's not like Leo didn't have a handful of answers when he finally did deploy his spyglass and could easily counter uh, release the gremlins. So it puts your red-black opponents in an awkward spot where you're dealing with their best threats against you, which tend to be Heart of Kirin, Chandra, and Arguil's Bloodfast. Uh, spyglass answers them all. So I, I really like this card here. I mean, I know it's a card that fundamentally has some issues, right? It's very reactive. Um, there's a lot of people who just detest pithy needle effects uh, in general. But here, it was the right tool for the job, I believe. Well, when your opponent has multiple hearts, Chandra's and Karin's, it's not like you're boarding in Spyglass just to like Pithing Needle one card, right? Like one specific thing preemptively or whatever. It's just like, this is just like boarding in a Doomblade, but better. That hits so, all the copies right. of the card. Yeah, so I, I definitely like Spyglass too, and given the density of red black, like I could see one copy of this main deck actually. Maybe, maybe that's the next evolution. Uh, the card looks super impressive throughout the weekend watching him play. Just uh, there was a game where uh, Martin had a uh, heart in play and two hearts in hand, and there was a sorcerer Spyglass in play naming heart, and he just sat there and died. Yeah, there's nothing he can do at that point. He's lost so much, you know, card advantage and. He lost his best threat in the matchup. It was absolutely dominant in that game. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Well, how much would you change from Leo's deck? And like, do you want to talk about specifics? Like things that stand out to me are like the one commit, which obviously can lock it up once you've Teferi emblemed. But at that point, like, does it actually matter? That could also just be like a pull from tomorrow. And how, yeah. like, what about the blink of an eyes? Blink of an Eyes looked incredible while I was watching him play all weekend. Uh, and it's a card I shied away from thinking it would be too low impact. But you're so dependent on velocity. Like in so many spots, if you just get to play a Teferi when they have no threat in play, you're probably going to win the game. It happens over and over and over. And his deck was designed to maximize that. He had three Blinks, four Teferi. He played he played the max number of Teferi. That's not something that most people would do. It's not something that I've been doing. Um, but he leaned in really hard. And I think correctly so. Three seems like a lot to me, but I, I really like two copies of Blink. Also, a lot of strategic options opened up. You know, you can bounce your Sorceress Spyglass when you need to, or you can, you know, reset a cast out if you play it in the early game and need to get it back, or even a seal away. So a lot of versatile stuff you can do with Blink. As far as the commit, Leo was casting memory very aggressively, very aggressively. And in a lot of spots where I didn't quite agree with it, sometimes he got paid on it, sometimes he didn't. But he's not afraid to just, you know, play memory on turn eight. Um, and only have two untapped lands is give his opponent the first crack and just believe he can get more out of his deck than his opponent can. And it came true a lot of the time. As far as if I would play this card going forward, 
I think I do like a copy. It's just versatile enough that I'm willing to include it and the memory upside. Like you said, I don't think the Teferi thing, while it happens sometimes, it's not the important part of the card. It, it really, it's pretty academic when you've ultimated Teferi. I've never lost with an ultimated Teferi. So you don't really need to work very hard to make it good. Okay. The last decision I wasn't crazy about is three essence scatters. That feels like a lot to me. You have so many efficient ways of dealing with creatures when they do hit the board. Kind of in that slot, I've been playing a one-on-one split, Essence Scatter and Negate, and I may even go to two Negates for this week just because I, I kind of like it better. Your, your problematic cards are Planeswalkers for the most part, and I also expect this deck to get more popular. So the more main deck Negates you have, obviously that's better for you in that spot. Yeah, so the thing that stands out to me for this deck is you noted that this deck relies a lot on velocity and just I, I agree that if instead of casting like a glimmer of genius you have a window to cast blink of an eye with kicker I think that that is overall doing more for your game plan assuming that at some point you get to stick a teferi a search or cast a pulver from tomorrow right mm-hmm. but because of the velocity issue I, I just want like two hieroglyphic illuminations in this deck. Is that just super bad? Do you just never have time to cast one of those cards? Like, I feel no, like it, if, it, if Leo is in spots where he's aggressively playing memory, it's like, well, this this deck clearly needs like some additional card advantage, right? Right. It, it's totally fine. I've had two hieroglyphic illuminations in my list for a long time now. They are fine. You, you you do cast the four mana mode sometimes. Mostly it's used for cycling, just making sure you hit land drops, but it's nice to have the option. The biggest tick I would have against Leo's list as far as the velocity goes is I think you need to start with three pull from tomorrow because you're very happy in a lot of spots casting the four mana pulls um, and not generate a lot of card advantage, but just getting card quality and getting your land drops and finding your Teferi in a lot of spots. Like It's mostly fine. Uh, it, it's not as big of a downgrade from the hieroglyphic illuminations as you think it would be in this deck. Uh, so that's the number I would start with. I would get to the third pull from tomorrow. If after that I discovered I needed more velocity, I could see losing uh, commit to memory and just playing hieroglyphic illumination in that spot. A lot of the other stuff though feels kind of untouchable. I think the four Teferi, while it's clearly the most powerful de- card in the deck and it absolutely what your game plan is based around, I think you can make a case for three just because games where you open on multiples are problematic you definitely need that first one and you usually want the second one but i think of an opener where you have three teferi like you're just done for you can't really you can't really live through that you need your interactive spells early on so i'm still in the three teferi camp but i liked i mean he was trying to maximize the best portion of the deck and that's teferi it's a dominant planeswalker in this format so i get where he was coming from but you know if you want to go down to three teferi in this list and and add an illumination i don't think you're going to be punished for that at all i think that's a totally defensible choice yeah i think the the teferis and pulls all kind of occupy the same space and then like the commit cast out blink of an eye you can also kind of like lump together and it's just like basically how many like win conditions slash engines do you want and you've been playing three to very three pull and he just had four to very two pull and mm-hmm. i i think it's cool that you both agreed that you want like the same number effectively but yeah ha- yeah like which one you choose is just kind of up to you i think Right, and it could it could go to a playstyle thing. I mean, one of the things commentary noted was that Leo used his Teferis very aggressively. He was more than willing to burn them, uh, burn a minus three, killing his Teferi to put him in a favorable board state um, and just hoping to follow up with the next Teferi. Um, yeah. So 
you can afford to do stuff like that when you are playing four copies, you know, but if you're leaning on right. it, it's, it's a little harder to spew that away. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So it, it really, you know, complemented his play style nicely. Word. Uh, so the other thing that I will note, if I have convinced you maybe to put in some illuminations, maybe with a third poll, maybe only three to fairies, like you're talking about adding a couple copies in the gate. Well, this this might be your spot, man. This this might be the place where you could play an unwind or two. I thought about that. And you know, it's it's very easy to get to game states where you are tremendously rewarded for having unwind in your deck. So when I started thinking, oh, do I just want, you know, two negates in my previous negate essence scatter spot? I was like, well, wait, do I just want an unwind? The thing that has prevented me from pulling the trigger is Teferi. I mean, the turn five untap with negate up, it's an incredibly powerful position to be in. Giving that up is a hard sell. Obviously, at most points later on in the game, you're going to be tremendously rewarded for having unwind instead of negate. But that one turn is so critical to this deck's fundamental plan. I haven't been able to talk myself into unwind yet. But I get what you're saying, and it's crossed my mind. I'm just not there yet. So the biggest thing that I would want unwind for is when they try and punish your settle the wreckage turn. Mm. Illuminate a little bit more on that. So blue white deck has four open mana. You have like three creatures or whatever. And if Chandra, yeah, or you, you attack first with like all your creatures because you want to resolve your Chandra, right? Like, I mean, I guess, I guess that's worse. Like then, then your unwind doesn't do anything, but like, yeah, with the, the situation you're talking about where it's like, okay, main A, I'm going to jam a threat that you have to counter. Now I know you can't settle the wreckage and then I just get to attack with everyone, right? Right. And you're getting some strategic diversity by playing Unwind, right? Like you're forcing them to make that decision where in a lot of spots, there's a very clear play pattern against the existing list. And if you have an Unwind in your deck, it blows up that very clear play pattern. Yeah. So it's it's possible that if you have Negate's main and some amount of Negate's in the sideboard, maybe you want Unwind, but I don't think... If you're worried about like the Teferi untapped lands have negate always, then again, something like red black, maybe you're going to have like two or three negates in after board, maybe more. I don't know, but like you probably don't want any of them to be unwind. Right. Yeah. It's so key to protect your Teferi in that matchup. But something to think about. I mean, if, if one of the weaknesses of blue white control is that it is very easy to not necessarily play around, but like, play against, I guess, and like make them dance, then that is a thing that you could inject into the situation to kind of break that paradigm. Right. Another card I would mention that I'm super high on is walking ballista in this deck. And that sounds kind of weird, but you see right now, Leo's playing history of Benelia in his sideboard. I, I think walking ballista does everything that history does 10 times better and has a whole bunch of other applications that history of Benelia can offer you. It is, is incredibly effective in the mirror. You can use it to pressure Teferi. And usually there's this weird thing where like you don't really want to play the first Teferi in a lot of spots unless you know you have the negate backup and can counter their Teferi because they just bounce yours. But where you proactively have a walking bliss on the battlefield, it lets you utilize your mana as efficiently as possible in a bunch of spots. Uh, again, a bunch of strategic options. It allows you to pressure Teferis um, and eventually just end the game. I mean... In post-board configurations, blue-white decks aren't going to be great at a walking ballista that just sits back and doesn't do anything. And your games are going to go on forever. So you're really able to take advantage of a a two-mana threat there and just kind of ride it throughout the course of the game. 
and you get some bonus points against mono red. Um, you're able to pick off things like glint sleeve siphoners, which some decks may have as post board plans against you. So I really like walking ballista in that spot much more than history of Benalia right now. I think ballista stands up a little bit better against the old blue white decks and not so much against Leo's because he has things like blink of an eye commit. Uh, the cast outs are almost certainly staying in post board and like invoke the divine might come in for the cast outs and search for scantas and stuff like that. So like, I feel like, Ballista before might have been pretty close to untouchable, and now it's not anymore. So if they're using those resources, those resources that you mentioned are incredibly important in the matchup, like because they're eventually going to decide the Teferi War. So if you're able to demand some of those resources from your two-drop, I think you're able to leverage that later on in the game. I'm just not super excited about tapping three mana very often uh, for History of Benalia, and it seems vulnerable to... Uh, negates it seems vulnerable because you know they're maxing negate in post-board configurations and probably cutting essence scatter yep so again if you're able to command a disallow for two mana you're trading up on mana and that's a very very important resource in this deck because there's one of the things that changes fundamentally about this style of control is you're used to having so many virtual copies of a card from a control deck like when the gear hulk decks had access to these cards it felt like they had a tremendous number of copies they just never ran out of counter magic this deck can run out of counter magic it can absolutely happen because you don't have those virtual copies in your graveyard so every resource you're able to command with something like walking ballista i think it's pretty beneficial to you and i don't think history of benelia does as good a job of doing that uh i i will agree that history seems lackluster it it just seems like maybe all i'm saying is that the blisses that you used to just like sit on basically or like, you know, make a, a focal point of your plan where you're just like pumping a bunch of mana into it. Like, I, I don't think that that is as much of a hard lock as it used to be. Right. That is, that's a fair point. I they think definitely uh, have adapted to some extent without trying to adapt. Yeah. I think a ballista on two is certainly a, a very threatening thing if you're trying to stick it to fairy, right? Like it, it's just almost impossible for you to actually just be able to play that and just have it, you know, be well protected. Right. So like, you're going to have to deal with the ballista first, which I think is a fine sideboard plan and makes a lot of sense. I don't necessarily think that people can really afford to cut essence scatter unless they know for sure. Like maybe if they see pull from tomorrow, but then it's like, okay, well is torrential gear Hulk actually where you want to go post board? I don't know. Mm -hmm. And like, Interesting. That, that would help for time considerations too, because that is that's certainly something you have to note when discussing this deck. Yeah, uh, without a doubt. I mean, it, it comes up, like I said, the deck tends to take very authoritative control of the game, but it takes a long time to end the game from that point. Yeah, and on Magic Online, your opponents might just concede because you're not going to run out of time. But in real life, your opponents really have no reason to actually just concede, especially if you're in a Great. game three situation. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely something to consider. Oh man, this deck, this this deck is going to make things miserable. I think <laughs> it might. It might have that effect on everyone else. It'll make me happy. Everyone else might be miserable for a little while because uh, get ready for a lot of really long rounds and uh, 
at, at least the games of Magic are very interesting in the early turns. I'll say that. I, I've enjoyed playing this deck a lot because there's a ton of interesting decisions. And, and I think they're interesting for your opponents as well. You know, there's always the question of how much pressure can I put into Settle? Um, do I then leave myself vulnerable to Fumigate? Do they have Counter Magic now? There's just an incredible amount of mental acrobatics going on uh, yep. across the players that I really enjoy. It's, it's one of my favorite styles of Magic for sure. Yeah, and I agree with you, and I like that a lot. I enjoy it. I think that's just like good magic gameplay on both sides. But if you cap this deck at 12 turns and then decide a winner at that point, I would be much happier. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> I get it. I really do. I've, trust me, I've played this deck a lot, and I haven't been able to get through that many games because they take a really long time. I almost always use the vast majority of my clock on Moto. It's just a cost you have to pay, I guess. And maybe to that extent, it's time to make some concessions to that point. Oh, that's that's too bad. I don't know. The deck is so pretty as is. It's just there. there's something really nice about having no win conditions. You're preaching to the choir, sir. I mean, I don't think there's anyone you have to. Basically, my goal is to any deck I'm building, I want to have no win conditions. That's always my goal. Unfortunately, it's usually impossible. But this deck comes real close. So that used to be my goal. And then I was like, Screw it. Let's play six mana mythics. And I've been winning a lot more since then. So I believe that. <laughs> I totally believe that. Well, there's a reason. Uh, one of us is going to end up in the Hall of Fame, and one of us is not on the Pro Tour right now. So maybe I should look inwards and also pick up my six mana mythics and, <laughs> and get those free wins here and there. Or just play faster, man. I don't know. Yeah, that too. We're gonna work on that this week. We'll we'll get there. Word. So uh End notes, I suppose, are red block's going to be huge. Uh, I, I don't think yes. that there's any way around that. And regardless of that statement, Goblin Chain Whirler is going to be huge. So I think that does a lot of like pretty crappy things to the format, which I don't really like. I mean, you can still play green decks as long as they are just like straight hammers against red black. Right. That's a scary spot for the metagame to be in where it's it's very specifically targeting. If, if we break into straight rock, paper, scissors, we might have some problems. I don't think things are there yet, but you could see things trending that way if uh, nothing too exciting pops up out of the woodwork these next few weeks. Well, if if white black vehicles is not at least like a 55 plus percent favorite against red black, I think that there's basically no reason to play it, especially since it has toolcraft exemplar. And from the red black aggro side for fighting mirror matches, like just get the bow mats out of your deck. You just have to. Yep, they can't be there anymore. Too much of a cost. So I can see white black vehicles trending down, green decks in general trending down, like the constrictor variety, and like certainly glint sleeve siphoner just has to go. Yep, can't play it anymore. The mono green decks, uh, I think, can still get away with playing Llanowar Elves, right? Because like if you play. Steel Leaf Champion into Ronus, and their follow-up is Chain Whirler away your Land War Elves. You don't care. Yep. Yep. Still got them. Yeah, I think the Land War Elves in that deck acting as a mana accelerator is just far too important. And I, I still don't think that these mono green decks are very good against Red Black, especially if the Red Black deck like has a good sideboard plan. And it, it kind of struck me that like none of these Red Black decks were like very tuned at all. But yeah, if, if I mean, if they're playing like Doomfalls and Hour of Glories and things that can deal with these big threats, like Cut Ribbons, I guess, is another one, then I don't think the Mono Green deck is where you want to be either. Hmm. 
What about our old friend, the Scarab God? I, I noticed he was not present in any of these these top eight decks. Is is he ready to make a return? No, he's so bad against disintegration. Yes, he is. He he continues to be completely absent from the metagame, and I will mention that every single week. Scarab God is still not good. Yeah, it's like oh, let's do the alive looking on the Scarab God, just like you know, currently drowning or like it's like yeah, he's he's returning from the graveyard every turn, but. Uh, it's to do nothing. Yeah, you're just taking ten damage every time that happens. So, yep, still no scarab. Yeah, it's not going to change. Uh, one of the decks I wanted to work on was this mono black control deck, though. Not not like control, but like mid range. Like I want to play scrap heap and dread shade and heart of Kirin, Karn, and then just all the good black removal spells. I'm hearing some reports that this deck might actually have a fine black red matchup. Actually, nice. That's that's kind of that's kind of what I thought too. I can't speak to that myself. I haven't, I haven't played with the black deck at all, um, but there's starting to be some buzz around it. So maybe it's time to give that a look and, and see what it's capable of doing. Well, Gotti is pretty nice. You have a lot of Vraska's Contempts and Never Returns and stuff like that. Like you have good clean answers to a lot of their stuff and a lot of different ways of getting card advantage yourself. So it wouldn't surprise right. me if this deck was actually good. Right. And then, you know, if you start to then think about the control matchup as well, you have Duress, Post Board. A very Blood powerful Fest. effect against those decks. Bloodfest is still good. So yeah, there, there's some. Black has some very diverse strategic approaches to take to the games right now. And uh, if, if you're able to figure out the black red deck, this mono black deck might be able to yield some dividends right now. Good God, you know how nice it is to play like 26 lands the ETB untapped. Yeah, it's a beautiful feeling, especially when it's not like a, a pure aggro deck. Like you're still able to do mid-rangey things, but you're just like, all my lands are perfect. I don't even have to think about this ever again. Yeah, Leo's deck had three meandering rivers, like Cinder Barons won the GP. Like this is awful. People have to jump through like a lot of hoops, even in a two-color deck to play Goblin Chain Whirler. Like you just have like the Miser's Aether Hub because you don't want to play a second Swamp. And it's just like, it's so bad, man. Yeah, nothing like some nice, nice, clean mana. Uh, it always feels really good. Yeah, so I got I got a few other things I'm working on. I really like the card Herald of Anguish also, but the artifacts supporting it are not very good. And one of the artifacts is like, you know, Servo Schematic and Cog Worker's Puzzle Knot, which, again, you just can't play because of Chain Whirler. Yeah, and I think those cards are a little, little mopey on rate too. Like, trust me, I want these decks to be as good as much as you do, but... I haven't really seen anything yet. And and Herald of Anguish is a card I've tried to make work in multiple builds, going back to old Mardu builds, and I've never quite got there with it. It seems like it have, should have so much potential, but just hasn't realized that potential for all its time and standard. Yeah, for sure. And then one of the other things I want to work on is Teferi in the vehicle shell. Mm. Yeah, a powerful card. Uh, I, th- I think its versatility has, has shown through uh, as it's made its presence felt in this standard metagame. Uh, I don't think we've seen the end of Teferi. There's a lot of applications for this card. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, one of the decks that was doing well on Magic Online for a while was like the Bant Planeswalkers thing that like didn't even play Llanowar Elves, right? Like they had Servant of the Conduit because they wanted Accelerators for their Planeswalkers, but they didn't have enough untapped green to actually play Llanowar Elves. So that could be yep. a, a place to go to. I messed with the deck a little bit. It was neat. I mean, accelerated to fairies are really good. Wasn't quite figured out yet, though, but there's potential there for sure. All right. So GB Toronto this weekend, you, me, Todd Anderson, uh, 225 magic cards, I hope, not 226. 
God willing. Yeah. And I don't know. We're still, we're still juggling things around, man. I I don't know exactly like what kind of configuration we're going to end up or like who's going to end up sitting where, but I I like our chances no matter what. Right. I, I think that we're all pretty adaptable and comfortable playing in a lot of seats. So we've talked about a few configurations right now where I know wherever I'm, I end up, I have a plan. I, I think probably one of my plans is is very clear right now. I, I do love this blue white deck, but uh, you know, hopefully there's some other things we'll have time to explore uh, before we head up to the GP, and maybe we'll just find an edge. We we've talked about some of the places we we think it may exist. We could put in a little time and and figure out if those decks are are there. But we have nice backup options as well, if not. So yeah. So I, I mean, I guess we could just like run through each person if you want and just like talk about what we're playing for each format potentially. Sure. Uh, so for me, standard, I could see making an actual good red black deck and having glory bringer. I think that is maybe one of the best cards in the mirror. And then given that I would probably have two Chandra's defeats in the sideboard. And I would certainly respect the hell out of control. Like a lot of these red black decks are not playing as many like blood fast as they should be. And I think that that's just a mistake. Uh, but Barring that, if somehow you wanted to play Legacy, I could see playing your Blue White Control deck too. My opinion on Standard would be very similar. I think Red Black's in a good spot. If we had a very tuned list, I wouldn't be opposed to it. I hope to get time to explore Mono Black because I just want to see where things stand. I think I'll know very quickly whether it's something that it's worth investing more time into or just something that we're not going to be able to figure out before Toronto. But I have in my back pocket blue-white. I have a ton of reps with the deck already, so it's very easy to pick it up at this point. And I I have some what I believe to be unique plans for certain matchups, and I, I think they give me an edge where I need it. If I was playing Legacy... Turbo Depths would be my deck, but I would look something look to something more like the Jody Keith build with Dark Confidant and Deathrite Shaman in the deck, slowing down the pace of the deck a little bit for some just good cards. You know, getting rid of the Elvish Mystics Lotus Petals for Deathrite Shamans and Dark Confidants. Uh, I think that's a positive change for the deck, given that the metagame has somewhat adapted to its presence. You know, there's a lot of Diabolic Edicts floating around. You're more comfortable playing a little bit slower, you know, just good old-fashioned quality cards, some quality legacy cards. We went back talking a few months ago about how it was a mistake to play decks without Deathrite Shaman, but I still like Turbo Depths. I said, maybe it was worth considering. And then I said, well, maybe you should just be playing Deathrite Shaman and Turbo Depths. I think that proved to be true ultimately. And I, I really like this version of the deck and I would be comfortable playing that in legacy as well. Yeah, I do too. I mean, especially this version, it's just like a normal, you know, black green deck, which is... I generally, I paired like Brainstorm with my black-green cards when I was playing Legacy, but uh, if green-black is just good enough and your Tarmogoyf ends up being an Avatar token, then cool. You know, I, I think mm-hmm. this deck is actually quite good. Yeah, I'm with you. And, you know, until you play these depth decks, you undervalue what it means to be a pithy needle control deck. That doesn't sound like something you ever want to be in <laughs> any circumstances. But were, that game were plan... You just, were you just kind of... Uh, bad-mouthing Pithing Needle earlier. I, I was, I was. But now we have a bunch of discard effects to see our opponent's hands and our Pithing Needles cost one. And and Legacy in particular, 
a lot of decks have vulnerability to pithing needles and mana bases have vulnerability to pithing needles. And, you know, there's a lot of interesting things you can do with the card in Legacy. And you'd be surprised what kind of effective game plans you can cobble together functioning as this weird pithing needle control deck. I've done it a bunch of times with the Depths deck and it works. It's not pretty, but it works. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're just using every part of the Buffalo. It's fine. Right. Uh, me for Legacy, I still... I need to get around to trying this deck, but like it, it just so happens that it keeps putting up reasonable reasonable results. So like this, this steel stompy deck, maybe I just have like this thing for Foundry Inspector where like I just have to try that card. And it's it's a card that like people have been talking about potentially going in these decks, but like none of the winning lists ever play. So that probably says something. But yeah, it's like Thorn of Amethyst, Arcbound Ravager, Walking Ballista seems quite good to me. Uh, the depths deck I think is completely reasonable, but I'd sort of be out of my element there. And then I can I could build a blue deck. I think Tireless Tracker is kind of the way to go in these four color mirrors because it's not super vulnerable to any of the cards that people are normally playing to like get ahead in blue mirrors, just like the Lilianas and everyone has Baleful Strixes and Red Blasts and all of this nonsense. I think Tracker just kind of beats up on all of it. Right, I could totally see that. I think that. As far as the Steel Stompy deck goes, I wouldn't assume anything about the lack of inclusions of Foundry Inspector. I think this deck is so unexplored at this moment, and it has potential to be like the next breakout deck in Legacy. Absolutely. The power's there. Similar looking decks do very, very well in Vintage right now. Obviously, there's Mishra's Workshop there, but we have some cards that do a fair Mishra's Workshop impression right now. So if you wanted to play that deck, I'm 100% on board with it. I, I think it has capability to be the next big deck in Legacy. When Eldrazi came out, uh, I, I started throwing together some lists, and then I found out that it was a thing that like the source was working on, too. So then I like got some information from them, too, and I ended up getting second at the first open where Thawnauts here was legal. And playing these decks might go against what you are used to seeing from me because it's just like, you know, you tap out, you have six, whatever. But I, I do really enjoy playing these decks from time to time. Like I, I equate these to limit poker rather than no limit, you know, where it's just like very structured. Right. Right. Good. And, and I just like it, you know, it's not bad. I, I, I don't mind playing like thorn into threat and just watching people trying to like flip their delvers with ponders and stuff. It's just a joke. Right. Yeah. I would, I would totally support your decision to play that deck without a doubt. All right, well, uh, what about modern? I brought one modern deck with me. It is Mardu Pyromancer. <laughs> I'm, I'm not even bringing a modern deck with me. <laughs> like, I, I, think that's, I think we're pretty clear that that's probably going to fall in Todd's lap. He seems to be happy with that, and I'm comfortable with him playing modern. It, it's not that I'm opposed to it. It's just that I feel like I need some research time, and I don't think I'm going to have it before I head off to Toronto. There's some things I want to explore <laughs> It, it just seems to me like there should be room for red green scape shift in this format. That's not an archetype I like. You know, some people try to convince me that bring delight is, is just strictly better. There's no reason for red green to even exist. I don't know. I like the removal options of red green, the cheap removal to hold down hollow on humans. Um, obviously, there's a problem with sizing when those decks get out of control and, you know, your champions of the parish are huge. But it, it does seem to me like there's vulnerability to that kind of archetype right now. And I'd want to check that out. 
But on the whole, I, I just don't feel like I have anything to bring to the table. And I think if I brought trusty Karn into the mix, it would strictly be a mistake at this stage. I, I don't think it makes any sense to play Karn as things stand right now. So Yeah, man, I want to bring Karn into the mix, and it's either in standard or legacy. So Right, right. Different Karn. Uh, I think, yeah, I think affinity is good, and I think Karn has a lot to do with that too. Agreed. But I, I, I'm lacking the reps, quite frankly. I mean, if I had time, I could get up to speed, but that's not going to happen right now. But I, I'm, I'm with you. Affinity seems well positioned against humans. And, uh, you know, I think Hollow One is trending down right now, but humans definitely remains at the top of the roost. Yeah, for sure. And I know Todd, like the last time he played a team tournament, I think when he played with Will Cruz and Phil Smith, uh, he played humans and he said he did not do a lot of winning. So, yeah, if you look at most of these team tournaments too, it's like, there's always a team or two that does really well with just really weird decks. And I think part of the reason is because it's like, okay, we're talking about playing standard, right? We just automatically assume that like everyone's going to be playing red, black, or blue, white. And that's just not going to be the case. Right. Yeah. There's this weird expectation that comes with team tournaments because it's like, well, I don't know. I feel like if three people sit down and discuss what deck to play, someone's going to push you to the logical choice, right? Like you're just going to be in on one of the pillars of the format. No one's, your teammates aren't going to push you to be like, yeah, you should definitely play taking turns at this GP. That makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> right. Like, who's saying that? But someone does every single time. Yeah. Like, there's absolutely a team that does things like that. Yeah. So I, I think you have to be a little more cognizant of the format as a whole and less about like, well, they only have one standard player. So like, obviously they're going to be playing red black because that's not how it works. Like some teams just get yep. together and they just like don't even care what decks the other person is playing. They're just like, oh, like I know this person's good. Like they're probably going to win. Like I, I trust their decisions, right? Yeah, and that's a totally defensible choice. I mean, there's not a lot of interplay in these team tournaments, especially when they're varied across formats. Um, it, it's very different than the team sealed type configurations. It's kind of just some some other people you've tied your fate to uh, more than like a real team type experience. So I get it. I, I get the choice to just kind of stick with what you're good at and it's totally defensible. Yeah. But if we want to try and exploit some of those people who are just like, all right, we're only going to play against red, black humans and Delver, you know, like I am down with that. Like let's, let's play mm-hmm. affinity mono red prison. And I don't know, Pummel <laughs> or whatever. Okay, you guys are going to be in those seats then because I, I don't have a ton of interest in sitting through a day full of mono red prison. I did it once. Um, it was my single worst result ever in a tournament because I, it was the, during this time where I'm like, I'm just going to play every round of tournaments. And when I was 0-6, I was very much <laughs> regretting this decision to play every single round of a tournament. I had been play- paired against Burn like three consecutive rounds oh, yeah. at that point with my mono red prison deck. And I'm just like, what am I doing right now? So that was my one and only experience with mono red prison. It just won the legacy GP, just saying. I know it did. I know, but... It's it's not going to do so in my hands. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Word. Yeah, we'll we'll figure out some weirdo configuration. I'm I'm pretty excited to to just try some science. Right. It should, it should be a great tournament either way. And uh, I, I'm looking really forward to being able to put my deck in game podcast sleeves for the first time. That's that's my big uh, big selling point for this tournament. Ooh, I don't know that we're going to have them. We're not going to have them for this tournament. I don't think so. You're breaking my heart right now. How is that possible? I know they exist. I've seen pictures of them. They do exist. Uh, they're they're at uh, Derek's house, and he is the one mailing stuff out because I'm gone for a month. Uh, uh, 
Okay. I could uh, I could try I, and have him mail you like a box of them, which No, no, that's okay. I mean, I, I did have my heart set on it and I am crying right now. But despite that, I'm not going to make you special mail me game sleeves. We'll just have to you know, we'll have to delay their debut. Uh, I guess it's it's fair that our Patreons get to be the ones that deb- debut the sleeves, right? Like they're the reason they exist. They let us make them. It's not really fair of me to be greedy with the experience and be like, I get to be the first one to use them. Yeah, and that's kind of what I was saying too. Is like I don't, I didn't really want to be the first person. So okay, okay, I'm on board with that. I, I like that. Let's save them for our Patreons. You know, their support created the sleeves. They get to use them first. We'll hold off. Yeah, uh, the the Patreon hits the the first stretch goal. We have sleeves. The deck boxes have been delayed a little bit, maybe like a month, just kind of accidentally. But the sleeves have arrived. They are getting sent out, so uh, the various patrons can look forward to that. And you know, thank you guys and gals so much because Patreon's kind of been blowing up, and I'm very very happy to be able to provide like these sweet things for fans of the podcast. Right. It's, it's been an incredible amount of support. And just so everyone knows, we're already brainstorming what we want to do next. And we have some really cool ideas that we're floating back and forth right now. I don't know what the next evolution of the game podcast is going to be, but it's going to be awesome. I know that there's some really great ideas out there. And you guys are still more than welcome to contribute your own stuff, what you want to see us doing in the future. We will take that into consideration. I promise. Yeah, please. Like we're, we're actually pretty dumb. So we could, we could use some suggestions. <laughs> You're not supposed to tell them that they, they think we know what we're talking about. Don't give us up. Uh, we know what we're talking about as far as magic is concerned. I think it's pretty safe to say that. Just everything else. So we're completely clueless. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, running a podcast, like I'm learning as I go. I don't know about you. That's true. That's no, I mean, I've, I've never had a super successful podcast before, but looks like we do now. So we're, we're definitely figuring it out as, as time goes on. Hell yeah. Sakashima. <laughs> we are really doing it. All right. What's this question? All right. So I have a question from Jubbernut. And I think Jebernut's a new member to the Patreon. So first, welcome. He, he gets this question answered on the first shot. That's pretty good. Nice. And this is a little bit more specific than some of the questions we usually do. We usually go a little bit broader. But I, I like what he's asking here. And I, I think it's something that a lot of people struggle with. So so let's, let's go ahead and get to the question. Jebernut says, hey, squad, I was hoping to get more insight on what your decision-making process is when building a deck and deciding to have a one-of. For example, Jerry's second place deck at Pro Tour Rivals only played one Manamorphose. I know he touched on it in the episode, but I still don't really grasp why he wanted one. Decks that include one Embercool make sense to me because of how hard it is to cast and the fact that it's a win condition. But when it comes to cards like Manamorphose, how do you come to that conclusion and why? So definitely you're taking this first because he's talking about your specific choice. And I think that's a great place to start with this question. Uh, in with the Manamorphose specifically, it was, it was more of like a late game revelation where, you know, the night before the tournament, I'm just like, Oh, why doesn't this deck play this card? It should probably have a lot of them because it's, you know, it it is free to cast assuming you are not under Thalia. And while it does some weird things where like you look at an opening hand with like two or three Manamorphoses and your hand could end up being like seven lands or seven removal spells. Like you don't know. Uh, like there are definitely some downsides for the most part. It seemed like Manamorphose was a card that was doing exactly what the deck wanted, which was to put spells in its graveyard. And uh, that helps with young pyromancer and bedlam reveler. So 
I didn't know if the the first part that I was talking about was going to be too much of a downside. So I just ended up playing one copy because I figured one copy I could, could not get punished all that much. And after playing the tournament, it was like, okay, this deck should almost certainly have more copies, you know? So that instance, I don't think can provide like a lot of strategic value as far as like, oh, what made me decide to put in this one copy? It was basically just like, I think that I am not going to get punished by having one copy of this card. And I think it is going to be good. And I'm going to err on the side of caution. But for the most part, outside of like, you know, tutors, like you play one Blood Crypt in Jund because it is tutorable with your fetch lands, or you play uh, one Emrakul in the old Tron decks that had Ayavugan because it's tutorable. Like generally when I include a one of in my deck, like if I played Red Black last weekend, I think I would have had one Glorybringer. And that's basically because I think there are situations where drawing one copy of a card is completely fine and you may want to draw multiple copies at some point in some matchups, but not always and not in all matchups. And if against basically everyone drawing one copy is fine, then I don't see a whole lot of reason to not include one copy. But it's just like if you're playing... If you're playing red-black and you include zero copies of Glorybringer, you, you never have the ability to draw it, right? But if you have one copy, like it might show up sometimes and it might be great sometimes, but you basically won't get punished kind of similarly to the, the Metamorphose, you know? So you have to look at it like that. It's just like not only is drawing one copy fine, but you don't want to draw multiples or uh, in a lot of cases it's like, oh, I have 25 land and a lot of them ETB tapped. So like maybe this glory bringer is going to be like a turn six or turn seven play. Whereas if I just included like a rekindling Phoenix, that might be more along the lines of what I'm trying to do where I can play it on like turn four, turn five. Yeah. I, I think that the way I would define basically the concept that you're talking about, because I, I agree with what you're saying, but I think maybe a clearer way to look at it might be viewing cards in terms of potential. And often my one-ofs have extremely, extremely high upside. Like they're absolutely able to swing a game on the spot. They offer a strategic angle that no other card can offer me. They Just having a copy in your deck fundamentally changes certain matchups. Those are the type of cards I really like to include as one-ofs. And it's interesting if you kind of flip through the top eight from Birmingham, I just want to hit you real quick with some of the one-ofs that are included here. So you see a one of Fatal Push, one of Blossoming Defense, one of Raska Relic Seeker, a one of Cut to Ribbons, a one of Glorybringer. There's a one of Gideon. There's a one of Commit to Memory. And I think what most of these cards have in common, and I would argue the exception is something like Fatal Push really, is that when this card shows up, it has the potential to be absolutely game-breaking. It, it adds a dimension to your deck that was not previously there. Right, right. And something like Cut to Ribbons, you just have a straight burn spell on your deck now. Like how powerful is that in so many matchups where the board stalls out, but there's this ticking time bomb sitting in your graveyard. Just having one copy of Cut to Ribbons that you draw early on, and it's a fine removal spell. I mean, to me, Cut to Ribbons is kind of like the prototypical one-of. It makes sense as a one-of in these these black-red decks so clearly to me. By adding a strategic element and still functioning as like a perfectly good 
um, removal spell in its fail state where it's not doing its most explosive things. So split cards in particular, I mean, we see commit to memory also doing the one of thing. Split cards are really well suited to playing this role. But I think the card just has to have potential. It has has to have the potential to be game breaking. There's other like weird numbers reasons. You mentioned tutoring is another one. Uh, there's some like instances of diversifying removal spells where you'll see a one of removal spell on a lot of spots. Um, just to kind of break up, you know, you might play three seal aways and one, you know, other two, one Gideon's reproach. Yeah. So that's, that's something you see or sometimes. Baffling so end. baffling end, right. And just a little bit of strategic diversity that's doing something fundamentally close to the other card, but gets you an extra wrinkle in some spots that really might reward you. Yeah. And we kind of talked about this earlier where uh, like blink of an eye cast out and commit to memory all kind of occupy the same space in the deck where it's just like, these are cards that I use to deal with generic permanence or whatever. And Teferi and Pull are kind of like the I'm going to pull ahead now and start winning the game sort of stuff. Like mm-hmm. Glorybringer in red black also falls under the category of like, you know, this is like my big mythic rare type thing that is going to be doing a lot of the heavy lifting. And it's often better to just play a mix of those because if you draw a Chandra, a Karn, a Phoenix, and a Glorybringer over the course of the game, you have options. Right. There, you know, you might be able to say, like, oh, well, like Phoenix is a better card than Glorybringer right now. And maybe that's why you play like two and one or three and one. But like drawing different cards gives you more options rather than just like, you know, drawing four rekindling Phoenixes would. Right. Even when you can identify a certain card is better better in the metagame, it doesn't mean that there aren't spots for the other card to shine, um, as, especially when you're talking about a card like Glorybringer, which is super impactful on the board and can totally change the math of a situation. So again, potential. That's another that's another calling card of the best one ofs, I think. Right. And I, it should also be noted that, you know, like you shouldn't necessarily like split shock and magma spray so that you have options or whatever. It's just like they, they have to all be relevant, right? It's like Glorybringer is a card I would consider playing. Rekindling Phoenix mm-hmm. is a card I would consider playing. But if what you really want is Magma Spray, just play Magma Sprays, you know? Yeah, it goes back to feel, right? So many of these questions that we get asked about, it's like this feel thing where you just kind of develop over time an innate sense of, I need a copy of this and it's going to help me over time. And that's a crappy answer. That's the problem with just being like, oh, just feel when you need a one-up. That tells you nothing. So hopefully these things we're talking about is getting you closer to what my own feel is based on. And you're going to have to develop your own feel over time and and use that to, you know, pick out your one-ups. Well, a thing we can do in the future since podcast is kind of blowing up is one of the things that I've been thinking about is, if and when we hit the bonus episode per month, like one of the things that we could do is just like more deep dives, which I basically really enjoy doing. So it would just be fun. It would be fun for me. Same. But also like we could look at specific decks or how we would build specific decks and be like, okay, this is where I included one glory bringer. Here's my rationale. Right. And you can kind of like train people to think in that way. Or I don't know, maybe you just look at a list and it's like, yeah, I don't, I don't really like, four of this card, I would kind of like to dirty it up with like three in one of this, you know? Yeah. Going back and calling, calling back to our own experiences might do a lot to kind of, uh, you know, illuminate our thought processes a little bit more. And we just have so much like we're going to be able to cover with this extra episode because it feels like a lot of times 
we couldn't have come do the and done this episode this week and not talk about what went on in Birmingham and what went on in the PT. It would have been a disservice to our listeners uh, not to talk about all this stuff. But we're going to get some more flexibility going forward, and I'm really excited to see what we can use it on. Yep. Uh, in the meantime, don't play one toughness things. Yep, that's the takeaway. <laughs> it's in the bag. Good luck.